neglecting the Holy Spirit. But now look in the second place at the great danger. You may all know what shunting is on a railway. A locomotive with its train may be traveling in a certain direction, and the points at some place may not be properly opened or closed, and unobservingly it is shunted off to the right or to the left. And if that takes place, for instance, on a dark night, the train goes in the wrong direction, and the people might never know it until they have gone some distance. And just so, God gives Christians the Holy Spirit with this intention that every day, all their life, should be lived in the power of the Spirit. A man cannot live one hour of a godly life unless by the power of the Holy Spirit. He may live a proper, consistent life, as people call it, an irreproachable life, a life of virtue and diligent service, but to live a life acceptable to God, in the enjoyment of God's salvation and God's love, to live and walk in the power of the new life, he cannot do it unless he is guided by the Holy Spirit every day and every hour. But now listen to the danger. The Galatians received the Holy Spirit, but what was begun by the Spirit, they tried to perfect in the flesh. How? They fell back again under Judaizing teachers who told them they must be circumcised. They began to seek their religion in external observances. And so Paul uses that expression about those teachers who had them circumcised so that they may glorify in your flesh. Galatians 6:13. You sometimes hear the expression used religious flesh. What is meant by that? It is simply an expression made to give utterance to these thoughts. My human nature and my human will and my human effort can be very active in religion. After being converted and after receiving the Holy Spirit, I may begin in my own strength to try to serve God. I may be very diligent and doing a great deal, and yet all the time it is more the work of human flesh than of God's Spirit. What a solemn thought that man can, without noticing, be shunted off from the line of the Holy Spirit onto the line of the flesh. How solemn it is that man can be most diligent and make great sacrifices, and yet it is all in the power of the human will. Ah, the great question for us to ask of God in self-examination is that we may be shown whether our Christian life is lived more in the power of the flesh than in the power of the Holy Spirit. A man may be a preacher. He may work most diligently in his ministry. A man may be a Christian worker, and others may say of him that he makes great sacrifices, and yet you can feel there is something lacking. You feel that he is not a spiritual man. There is no spirituality about his life. How many Christians there are about whom no one would ever think of saying, what a spiritual man he is. Ah, there is the weakness of the Church of Christ. It is all in that one word, flesh. 
Now the flesh may manifest itself in many ways. It may be manifested in fleshly wisdom. My mind may be most active about Christianity. I may preach or write or think or meditate and delight in being occupied with things in God's book and in God's kingdom. Yet the power of the Holy Spirit may be markedly absent. I fear that if you take the preaching throughout the Church of Christ and ask why there is so little converting power in the preaching of the Word, why there is so much work and often so little result for eternity, why the Word has so little power to build up believers in holiness and in consecration, the answer will be, it is the absence of the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is this? There can be no other reason except that the flesh and human energy have taken the place that the Holy Spirit ought to have. That was true of the Galatians. It was true of the Corinthians. You know Paul said to them, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual men, but as unto carnal. 1 Corinthians 3, one. And you know how often in the course of his epistle he had to reprove and condemn them for strife and for divisions. Lacking the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A third thought. What are the proofs or indications that a church like the Galatians or a Christian is serving God in the power of the flesh, is perfecting in the flesh what was begun in the Spirit? The answer is very easy. Religious self-effort always ends in sinful flesh. What was the state of those Galatians? They were striving to be justified by the works of the law, and yet they were quarreling and in danger of devouring one another. Count the number of expressions that the apostle uses to indicate their want of love. You will find more than twelve. Envy, jealousy, bitterness, strife, and all sorts of others. Read in the fourth and fifth chapters what he says about that. You see how they tried to serve God in their own strength, and they failed utterly. All this religious effort resulted in failure. The power of sin and the sinful flesh got the better of them. Their whole condition was one of the saddest that could be thought of. This comes to us with unspeakable solemnity. There is a complaint everywhere in the Christian church of the lack of a high standard of integrity and godliness, even among the professing members of Christian churches. I remember a sermon which I heard preached on commercial morality. But let us not speak only of the commercial morality or immorality. Let us go into the homes of Christians. Think of the life to which God has called his children and which he enables them to live by the Holy Spirit. Think of how much there is of unlovingness, temper, sharpness, and bitterness. Think how often there is strife among the members of churches and how much there is of envy, jealousy, sensitiveness, and pride. Then we are compelled to say, where are marks of the presence of the Spirit of the Lamb of God? Wanting, sadly wanting. 
Many people speak of these things as though they were the natural result of our feebleness and cannot be helped. Many people speak of these things as sins, yet have given up the hope of conquering them. Many people speak of these things in the church around them and do not see the least prospect of ever having the things changed. There is no prospect until there is a radical change, until the church of God begins to see that every sin in the believer comes from the flesh, from a fleshly life, midst our Christian activities, from a striving in self-effort to serve God. We will fail until we learn to make confession, and until we begin to to see that we must somehow or other get God's Spirit in power back to His church. Where did the church begin in Pentecost? There they began in the Spirit. But how the church of the next century went off into the flesh. They thought to perfect the church in the flesh. Do not let us think, because the blessed Reformation restored the great doctrine of justification by faith, that the power of the Holy Spirit was then fully restored. If it is our belief that God is going to have mercy on His church in these last ages, it will be because the doctrine and the truth about the Holy Spirit will not only be studied, but sought after with a whole heart. It is not only because that truth will be sought after, but because ministers and congregations will be found bowing before God in deep abasement with one cry, we have grieved God's Spirit. We have tried to be Christian churches with as little as possible of God's Spirit. We have not sought to be churches filled with the Holy Spirit. All the feebleness in the church is owing to the refusal of the church to obey its God. And why is that so? I know your answer. You say, we are too feeble and too helpless, and we vow to obey, but somehow we fail. Ah, yes, you fail because you do not accept the strength of God. God alone can work out His will in you. You cannot work out God's will, but His Holy Spirit can, until the church and the believers grasp this and cease trying by human effort to do God's will and wait upon the Holy Spirit to come with all His omnipotent and enabling power. The church will never be what God wants her to be. It will never be what God is willing to make of her. Yielding to the Holy Spirit I come now to my last thought, that question. What is the way to restoration? Beloved friend, the answer is simple and easy. If that train has been shunted off, there is nothing for it to do but to come back to the point at which it was led away. The Galatians had no other way in returning but to come back to where they had gone wrong. 
They had to come back from all religious effort in their own strength and from seeking anything by their own work and to yield themselves humbly to the Holy Spirit. There is no other way for us as individuals. Is there any brother or sister whose heart is conscious? My life knows little of the power of the Holy Spirit. I come to you with God's message that you can have no conception of what your life would be in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is too high, too blessed, and too wonderful. But I bring you the message that just as truly as the everlasting Son of God came to this world and did His wonderful works, that just as truly as on Calvary he died and brought about your redemption by his precious blood, so can the Holy Spirit come into your heart with his divine power. He may sanctify you and enable you to do God's blessed will and fill your heart with joy and strength. But we have forgotten. We have grieved. We have dishonored the Holy Spirit, and he has not been able to do his work. But I bring you the message. The Father in heaven loves to fill his children with his Holy Spirit. God longs to give each one individually, separately, the power of the Holy Spirit for daily life. The command comes to us individually, unitedly. God wants us as his children to arise and place our sins before him and to call on him for mercy. Oh, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you perfecting in the flesh that which was begun in the Spirit? Let us bow in shame and confess before God how our fleshly religion, our self-effort and self-confidence have been the cause of every failure. I have often been asked by young Christians, Why is it that I fail so? I did so solemnly vow with my whole heart and did desire to serve God. Why have I failed? To such I always give this answer. My dear friend, you are trying to do in your own strength what Christ alone can do in you. And when they tell me, I am sure I knew Christ alone could do it, I was not trusting in myself, my answer is, you were trusting in yourself, or you could not have failed. If you had trusted Christ, he could not fail. Oh, this perfecting in the flesh, what was begun in the Spirit, runs far deeper through us than we know. Let us ask God to show us that it is only when we are brought to utter shame and emptiness that we will be prepared to receive the blessing that comes from on high. And so I come with these two questions. Are you living, beloved brother minister? I ask it of every minister of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you living as an anointed, spirit-filled man in your ministry and your life before God? Oh, friends, our place is an awful one. We have to show people what God will do for us, not in our words and teaching, but in our life. God help us to do it.
I ask it of every member of Christ's church and of every believer. Are you living a life under the power of the Holy Spirit day by day, or are you attempting to live without that? Remember, you cannot. Are you consecrated, given up to the Spirit to work in you and to live in you? Oh, come and confess every failure of temper, every failure of tongue, however small. Confess every failure owing to the absence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the power of self. Are you consecrated? Are you given up to the Holy Spirit? If your answer is no, then I come with a second question. Are you willing to be consecrated? Are you willing to give yourself up to the power of the Holy Spirit? You well know that the human side of consecration will not help you. I may consecrate myself a hundred times with all the intensity of my being, and that will not help me. What will help me is this. That God from heaven accepts and seals the consecration. And now, are you willing to give yourselves up to the Holy Spirit? You can do it now. A great deal may still be dark and dim and beyond what we understand. You may feel nothing but come. God alone can work the change. God alone, who gave us the Holy Spirit, can restore the Holy Spirit in power into our life. God alone can strengthen us with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3:16. And to every waiting heart that will make the sacrifice and give up everything and give time to cry and pray to God, the answer will come. The blessing is not far off. Our God delights in helping us. He will enable us to perfect, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, what was begun in the Spirit, kept by the power of God. The words from which I speak you will find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. The third, fourth, and fifth verses are... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. The words of my text are, Kept by the power of God through faith. There we have two wonderful blessed truths about the way a believer is kept unto salvation. One truth is kept by the power of God, and the other truth is kept through faith. We should look at the two sides, at God's side and His almighty power, offered to us to be our keeper every moment of the day. And at the human side, we have nothing to do but in faith to let God do His keeping work. We are begotten again to an inheritance kept in heaven for us. We are kept here on earth by the power of God. 
we see there is a double keeping, the inheritance kept for me in heaven, and I on earth kept for the inheritance there. Now, as to the first part of this keeping, there is no doubt and no question. God keeps the inheritance in heaven very wonderfully and perfectly, and it is waiting there safely. And the same God keeps me for the inheritance. That is what I want to understand. It is very foolish for a father to take great trouble to have an inheritance for his children and to keep it for them if he does not keep them for it. Think of a man spending all of his time and making every sacrifice to amass money, and as he gets his tens of thousands, you ask him why it is that he sacrifices himself so. His answer is, I want to leave my children a large inheritance, and I am keeping it for them. If you were then to hear that that man takes no trouble to educate his children, that he allows them to run around the street wild and to go in paths of sin and ignorance and folly, what would you think of him? Would you not say, poor man, he is keeping an inheritance for his children, but he is not keeping or preparing his children for the inheritance? And there are so many Christians who think, My God is keeping the inheritance for me. But they cannot believe, My God is keeping me for that inheritance. The same power, the same love, the same God doing the double work. Now I want to speak about a work God does upon us, keeping us for the inheritance. I have already said that we have two very simple truths. The one, the divine side, we are kept by the power of God. The other, the human side, we are kept through faith. Kept by the power of God. Look at the divine side. Christians are kept by the power of God. One, keeping includes all. Think, first of all, that this keeping is all-inclusive. What is kept? You are kept. How much of you? The whole being. Does God keep one part of you and not another? No. Some people have an idea that this is a sort of vague, general keeping and that God will keep them in such a way that when they die they will get to heaven. But they do not apply that word kept to everything in their being and nature. And yet, that is what God wants. Here I have a watch. Suppose that this watch had been borrowed from a friend, and he said to me, When you go to Europe, I will let you take it with you. But mind you, keep it safely and bring it back. And suppose I damaged the watch and had the hands broken and the face defaced and some of the wheels and springs spoiled, and took it back in that condition and handed it to my friend. He would say, Ah, but I gave you that watch on condition that you would keep it. Have I not kept it? There is the watch. But I did not want you to keep it in that general way, so that you should bring me back only the shell of the watch or the remains. I expected you to keep every part of it. And so God does not want 
to keep us in this general way so that at the last, somehow or other, we will be saved as by fire and just get into heaven. But the keeping power and the love of God applies to every part of our being. There are some people who think God will keep them in spiritual things, but not in temporal things. This latter, they say, lies outside of his realm. Now God sends you to work in the world, but he did not say, I must now leave you to go and earn your own money and to get your livelihood for yourself. He knows you are not able to keep yourself. But God says, My child, there is no work you are to do, and no business in which you are engaged, and not a cent which you are to spend, but I, your Father, will take that up into my keeping. God not only cares for the spiritual, but for the temporal also. The greater part of the life of many people must be spent sometimes eight or nine or ten hours a day amid the temptations and distractions of business. But God will care for you there. The keeping of God includes all. There are other people who think, Ah, in time of trial, God keeps me. But in times of prosperity, I do not need his keeping. Then I forget him and let him go. Others again think the very opposite. They think in time of prosperity, when things are smooth and quiet, I am able to cling to God. But when heavy trials come, somehow or other, my will rebels and God does not keep me then. Now I bring you the message that in prosperity, as in adversity, in the sunshine, as in the dark, your God is ready to keep you all the time. Then again, there are others who think of this keeping thus. God will keep me from doing very great wickedness, but there are small sins I cannot expect God to keep me from. There is the sin of temper. I cannot expect God to conquer that. When you hear of some man who has been tempted and gone astray or fallen into drunkenness or murder, you thank God for his keeping power. I might have done the same as that man, you say, if God had not kept me. And you believe he kept you from drunkenness and murder. And why do you not believe that God can keep you from outbreaks of temper? You thought that this was of less importance. You did not remember that the great commandment of the New Testament is love one another as I have loved you. John 13:34. And when your temper and hasty judgment and sharp words came out, you sinned against the highest law, the law of God's love. And yet you say, God will not, God cannot. No, you will not say, God cannot. But you say, God does not keep me from that. You perhaps say, He can, but there is something in me that cannot attain to it, and which God does not take away. I want to ask you, can believers live a holier life than is generally lived? Can believers experience the keeping power of God all day? 
to keep them from sin? Can believers be kept in fellowship with God? And I bring you a message from the Word of God in these words. Kept by the power of God. There is no qualifying clause to them. The meaning is that if you will entrust yourself entirely and absolutely to the omnipotence of God, He will delight in keeping you. Some people think that they can never reach the point that every word of their mouth would be to the glory of God. But it is what God wants of them. It is what God expects of them. God is willing to set a watch at the door of their mouth. If God will do that, can he not keep their tongue and their lips? He can. That is what God is going to do for those who trust him. God's keeping is all-inclusive. Let everyone who longs to live a holy life think about all their needs, their weaknesses, their shortcomings, and their sins, and say deliberately, Is there any sin that my God cannot keep me from? And the heart will have to answer, No, God can keep me from every sin. Two, keeping requires power. Second, if you want to understand this keeping, remember that it is not only an all-inclusive keeping, but it is an almighty keeping. I want to get that truth burned into my soul. I want to worship God until my whole heart is filled with the thought of His omnipotence. God is almighty, and the almighty God offers himself to work in my heart, to do the work of keeping me. I want to get linked with omnipotence, or rather, linked to the omnipotent one, the living God, and to have my place in the hollow of his hand. You read the Psalms and you think of the wonderful thoughts in many of the expressions that David uses. For instance, when he speaks about being our God, our fortress, our refuge, our strong tower, our strength, and our salvation. David had wonderful views of how the everlasting God is himself, the hiding place of the believing soul. David had a beautiful understanding of how God takes the believer and keeps him in the very hollow of his hand, in the secret of his pavilion, under the shadow of his wings, under his very feathers. And there David lived. And we, who are the children of Pentecost, who have known Christ, his blood and the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. Why is it that we know so little of what it is to walk step by step with the Almighty God as our keeper? Have you ever thought that in every action of grace in your heart you have the whole omnipotence of God engaged to bless you? When I come to a man and he gives me a gift of money, I get it and go away with it. He has given me something of his. The rest he keeps for himself. 
but that is not the way with the power of God. God can part with nothing of his own power, and therefore I can experience the power and goodness of God only so far as I am in contact and fellowship with him. And when I come into contact and fellowship with him, I come into contact and fellowship with the whole omnipotence of God. I have the omnipotence of God to help me every day. A son has, perhaps, a very rich father, and as the former is about to commence business, the father says, You can have as much money as you want for your undertaking. All the father has is at the disposal of the son, and that is the way with God, your almighty God. You can hardly take it in. You feel like such a little worm. His omnipotence is needed to keep a little worm. Yes, his omnipotence is needed to keep every little worm that lives in the dust and also to keep the universe. Therefore, his omnipotence is much more needed in keeping your soul and mine from the power of sin. Oh, if you want to grow in grace, do learn to begin here. In all your judgings and meditations and thoughts and deeds and questions and studies and prayers, learn to be kept by your almighty God. What is the almighty God not going to do for the child that trusts him? The Bible says, above all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3.20 it is omnipotence you must learn to know and trust. Then you will live as a Christian ought to live. How little we have learned to study God and to understand that a godly life is a life full of God. It is a life that loves God and waits on Him, trusts Him, and allows Him to bless it. We cannot do the will of God except by the power of God. God gives us the first experience of His power to prepare us to long for more and to come and claim all that He can do. God helps us to trust Him every day. Three, keeping is continuous. Another thought this keeping is not only all-inclusive and omnipotent, but also continuous and unbroken. People sometimes say, for a week or a month, God has kept me very wonderfully. I have lived in the light of his countenance, and I can say what joy I have had in fellowship with him. He has blessed me in my work for others. He has given me souls, and at times I felt as if I were carried heavenward on eagle wings. But it did not continue. It was too good. It could not last. And some say, it was necessary that I should fall to keep me humble. And others say, I know it was my own fault, but somehow you cannot always live up in the heights. Oh, beloved, why is it? Can there be any reason why the keeping of God should not be continuous and unbroken? Just 
think. All life is in unbroken continuity. If my life were stopped for half an hour, I would be dead and my life gone. Life is a continuous thing, and the life of God is the life of His church. The life of God is His almighty power working in us. And God comes to us as the Almighty One. And without any condition, He offers to be my keeper. His keeping means that day by day, moment by moment, God is going to keep us. If I were to ask you the question, do you think God is able to keep you one day from actual transgression? You would answer, I not only know He is able to do it, but I think He has done it. There have been days in which he has kept my heart in his holy presence. There have also been days when, though I have always had a sinful nature within me, he has kept me from conscious, actual transgression. Now, if he can do that for an hour or a day, why not for two days? Oh, let us make God's omnipotence, as revealed in his word, the measure of our expectations. Has God not said in his word, I, the Lord, do keep it and will water it every moment? Isaiah 27, 3. What can that mean? Does every moment mean every moment? Did God promise of that vineyard or red wine that every moment he would water it so that the heat of the sun and the scorching wind might never dry it up? Yes. In South Africa, they sometimes make a graft, and above it they tie a bottle of water, so that now and then there will be a drop to saturate what they have put about it. And so the moisture is kept there unceasingly until the graft has had time to take and resist the heat of the sun. Will our God in his tender-hearted love toward us not keep us every moment when he has promised to do so? Oh, if we once got hold of the thought, our whole spiritual life is to be God's doing. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Once we get faith to expect that from God, God will do all for us. The keeping is to be continuous. Every morning, God will meet you as you wake. It is not a question, if I forget to wake in the morning with the thought of Him, what will come of it? If you trust your waking to God, God will meet you in the mornings as you wake with His divine sunshine and life. He will give you the consciousness that through the day you have got God to continually take charge of you with His almighty power. And God will meet you the next day and every day. Never mind if, in the practice of fellowship, failure sometimes comes. If you maintain your position and say, Lord, I am going to expect you to do your utmost, and I am going to trust you day by day to keep me absolutely, your faith will grow stronger and stronger. You will know the keeping power of God in unbrokenness. Kept through faith. And now the other side, believing. Kept by the power of God through faith. How must we look at this faith? For faith implies helplessness. Let me say first of all that this faith means utter inability and helplessness before God. At the bottom of all faith there is a feeling of helplessness. 
If I have a bit of business to transact, perhaps to buy a house, the lawyer must do the work of getting the transfer of the property in my name. He must make all the arrangements. I cannot do that work, and in trusting that agent, I confess I cannot do it. And so faith always means helplessness. In many cases it means I can do it with a great deal of trouble, but another can do it better. But in most cases it is utter helplessness. Another must do it for me. And that is the secret of the spiritual life. A man must learn to say, I give up everything. I have tried and longed and fought and prayed, but failure has come. God has blessed me and helped me, but still in the long run, there has been so much sin and sadness. What a change comes when a man is thus broken down into utter helplessness and self-despair and says, I can do nothing. Remember Paul. He was living a blessed life, and he had been taken up into the third heaven. Then the thorn in the flesh came, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. 2 Corinthians 12:7. And what happened? Paul could not understand it, and three times he went to the Lord to take it away. But the Lord said, in effect, no. It is possible that you might exalt yourself. Therefore I have sent you this trial to keep you weak and humble. And Paul then learned a lesson that he never forgot, to rejoice in his infirmities. He said that the weaker he was, the better it was for him. For when he was weak, he was strong in his Lord Christ. Do you want to enter what people call the higher life? Then go a step lower down. I remember Dr. Boardman telling me how once he was invited by a gentleman to go to a factory where they made a fine shot. I believe the workmen did so by pouring down molten lead from a great height. This gentleman wanted to take Dr. Boardman up to the top of the tower to see how the work was done. The doctor came to the tower, he entered by the door, and began going upstairs. But when he had gone a few steps, the gentleman called out, That is the wrong way. You must come down this way. That stair is locked up. The gentleman took him downstairs a good many steps, and there an elevator was ready to take him to the top. He said, I have learned a lesson that going down is often the best way to get up. Ah, uh, yes, God will have to bring us down very low. A sense of emptiness and despair and nothingness will have to come upon us. It is when we sink down in utter helplessness that the everlasting God will reveal himself in his power. Then our hearts will learn to trust God alone. What is it that keeps us from trusting him perfectly? Many say, I believe what you say, but there is one difficulty. If my trust were perfect and always abiding, all would come right, for I know God will honor trust. But how am I to get that trust? My answer is, by the death of self. The great hindrance to trust is self-effort. So long as you have got your own wisdom and thoughts and strength, you cannot fully trust God. But when God breaks you down, when everything begins to grow dim before your eyes, and you see that you understand nothing, then God is coming near. If you will bow down in nothingness and wait on God, He will become all. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.